Welcome to Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative, a podcast series sponsored by the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at the NYU Silver School of Social Work and the Community Technical Assistance Center of New York. I'm your host, Jason Jones. This series brings together thought leaders, community members, and individuals with lived experience to discuss and dispel the myths and stereotypes surrounding black boys and men, while providing facts and best practices for those working with these often marginalized populations. Resilience, the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties. It is the characteristic or trait that allows people to thrive despite inconceivable hardship and experiences of trauma. Terrence Coffey is many things. He's a father, an advocate, a scholar, and to many, he's an inspiration. Most of all, Terrence is resilient, and this is his story. Terrence, thank you for joining us. Let's start by hearing a little bit more about you and your journey. Jason, thank you guys for having me. Uh here today. Um, I think I just shared with you, I was just nominated, selected the 2017 um, NSAW Student of the Year, which is, you know, tremendous. And, you know, when you, I was thinking about the word resilience and, you know, the ability to carry on through situations, I kind of reflect back over my life today, currently being a grad student here at New York University Civil School of Social Work and interning here at McSilver Institute has given me an opportunity to kind of do a lot of the different work that, you know, that has affected my life since childhood. Personally, I I grew up in foster care. I grew up in uh, some very challenging situations throughout my life. And um, when I think of the word resilience, I basically see it as in a less, I guess, academic form as people surviving. I've throughout my life had to survive certain situations and not only just through foster care because I'm also a formerly incarcerated person and I've kind of lived the life that called for me to survive. Um, I never perceived it as resilience. I only perceive it as making it through the next day and uh, what I began to understand is when we start thinking about the attributes of resilience you can actually see remnants of that in people who survive and it's not a I think I look at resilience as a more of a conscious state at some point where you begin to face challenges whether you know academically professionally etc or through hardships or things that we go through that we make a determination to move forward. As I mentioned, I grew up in foster homes in Florida. I was separated from my parents at a very very early age in life. My siblings and I were basically placed in the foster care system. I was later adopted by the Coffee family, which played an intricate role in who I am today. But also, for me, having to deal with a lot of the issues that come with the being in foster care, being um, dealing with the juvenile justice system as a uh, as a kid, I was considered a bad kid because of the uh, challenges that I faced within that system. I got in a lot of fights. Sometimes kids are forced to be what they are and who they are in those situations because I like to call it situational responses to hardships. Uh, in my life, I adopted quite a few of those behaviors that helped me to survive. And unfortunately for me, those same behaviors led me to 
my involvement not only with the juvenile justice system but also with the criminal justice system. My first involvement with incarceration was at age 20 for the sales and delivery of cocaine. You know, I get I, a lot of people questioning me in regards to my uh, involvement with the, uh, you know, with the, that, that lifestyle. And what I say to them is that at nine, I attacked another young man with in the uh, foster care system who decided that I was one of those individuals, you know, he would take advantage of. And through my act of uh, against him, I was uh, placed in a juvenile dis detention center, what they call at that time, I'm, I'm giving my age away, a boy's uh, outside boy's home, so to speak. But no one ever asked me why. And I need to be perfectly honest, I never told anybody why because there was a lot of different things going on inside of me that why would a person perceive me or, you know, I didn't understand a lot of the things I understand now about life. But that is really what began, I think, a journey for me to adopting a way of life that would to some seem counterproductive to success. I need to say that I was, a, you know, through those things, I had a lot of emotional trauma, internal trauma, uh, separation from my parents. I just had to learn to kind of deal with it on my own. So as I moved along throughout this is that led up to that incarceration is that I began to adopt a survival mentality. And that survival mentality didn't allow me to be a kid. It didn't allow me to be friendly. It didn't allow me to be uh, just, you know, like, like any other kid. I would probably have just wanted to go out and play ball and, you know, just have a nice kid's life. But the environments I grew up in, calls for me to uh, protect myself. It calls me to always be on the defensive. It calls me not to participate in what some would consider the, the normal social transition of a, of a youth, but because I think that sometimes what happens is that we ask kids who are, are going through traumatic situations or challenging situations to act normal in the situation in which they, they don't have the capacity or the situation isn't a normal situation for them to, to, to respond normally to a situation. So it's almost a uh, catch-22, I like to call it. And again, I don't say this from a perspective of just research that I have learned in my academic career. I say this from personal experiences that I lived through. And I know what it was like to be a, a child in that and, you know, trying to figure out why your parents don't want you and why this is going on and no one is giving you clues to this. And again, that being around other young men who came through the same situations is where I began to identify with. Um, if we start looking at research, research tells us that most men are people or children. They, you know, we adapt to those things we identify with and whatever those kids were doing or what was going on, whether, you know, it's perceived by general society as good or bad, was not, it's not something that's considered. What is considered that you have individuals around you who can identify with your hurt and pain. They know what it is to be uh, abandoned. They know what it is to be rejected. They know what it is to feel alone. And we became one another's comfort through those 
challenges, and that's where my life kind of transcended to their life of drugs and selling drugs because they were my friends, um, good, bad, and different. Um, and it wasn't based on the, the activity they were in. It was based on a connection that we established through the years of being in those situations. The life that I lived became a lifestyle. It became a way of life. A lot of people asked me about the conditions of incarceration, the, the, the maltreatment of in prison, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that for me, what I see is that it's more concentrated and is, is, is just is blatantly seen in those contexts. But I, I need to say that the same discrimination, poverty, hardships that was suffered in that people are suffering in incarceration or the same things that people are suffering right here in poverty-stricken communities. We can talk about the policing that takes place in incarceration, but I would also like to talk about the policing that takes place in these poverty-stricken communities. We can talk about the neglect, the humility, the embarrassment, all these things that play into uh, what takes place in incarceration also takes place in these communities. So for a lot of us, the conditions we faced in prison were just actually almost a transition from the very projects that we were already living in. Society had already told us we weren't this. We got treated that way by policemen and law enforcement. Society had already dictated that we were super predators and we wouldn't amount to nothing. For us, you know, Tupac had a song, and a lot of people know that I, I, that's a, I'm a big fan of his. He say that's just the way it is. There was no conscious thought of how we were being treated in prison because it was just only a reflection of the society we had already left. It was just more concentrated at, in that environment. And when I also think about this, as I said earlier, the life I lived, was, it, it became a way of life. You've already said to me that I'm not going to amount to anything. You've already dictated that this is going to be the outcome of our lives. You've already dictated what we would and would not be coming from these communities. So I need to say that there was a great, there was an understanding that then what's the use of trying anything? You've already said that we were ignorant. You said we were this, you said we were all these things. So they're in, in prison, although at that time they did have somewhat uh, a few educational programs for a great majority of young men, um, young black men at that time, there was no push to try for anything because it was, it was almost seeming like, what are you trying for? When you get out, you're going to go to the same poverty-stricken communities. You're going to go back to the same policemen who treated you like whatever you got treated like. You're going to go back to the same society that had already shut you out of the economic and educational opportunities through their own subtle ways. And having a prison record, having it only played into that even more. Um, I've always talked about my friend Chen, who was given a 30-year sentence, and he was the individual that encouraged me to go back to school. He was considered what they would call an OG. And, um, you know, everyone has their heroes, whatever communities some may come from. If I grew up in a community where I saw black men who were aspiring to be lawyers and doctors and they were there and they were kicking and then I would have wanted to be that and that's reflective of any research that we do when we look at different communities and we see the outcomes of other children's lives as far as their careers et cetera, et cetera. and the same thing is true when we think of poverty-stricken communities that those people that I grew up 
to want to be like were G's. They were the success stories. Those were the men who, when I went to school, who were on the block every day who said, what's up, young brother? It was those men who were there. And my mind didn't try to decipher who was who or what was what. I just knew that they were there. And my desire to be like Chen was my life goal. I wanted to be an OG. That's what. That's the only thing that I could grow up to be based upon the societal influence and conditioning of me. That's what I aspire, and that's what millions of the young boy, black boys at that time, and even today, when we think of that, that's who we see. That's who is there, and that's the epitome of success for us. So whether that's a Cadillac, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, for some it may be the big home, the 401k account, being able to provide, those sort of things. But it's the same things. It's just done in different different environments and different capacities. So when this gentleman uh, told me to go to school, or to get in school and get my G, I was confused because I couldn't understand why the very man I was trying to, you know, emulate and be like was saying this to me and his last words to me was I don't want you to waste your life like I wasted mine I did not earn my GED while in prison for any academic outcome I didn't do it for no opportunity I didn't do it for none of that the only reason I got in school in the educational program in prison was because Chan encouraged me to and because I respected him so much was why I got into it. Now that I can talk about the value of mentorship, the value of mentorship is based on a fundamental idea of being able to connect with the individual and that individual being respected enough that his views and perceptions are are honored. And that's where you find your greatest, uh, I think, results and your, your greatest outcomes and your, the greatest success from a person, I need to tell you, a lot of times I took classes, I was just hoping to see Chen to impress him that I had done well. That was it. And I did earn my GED. Unfortunately, when the program ended and I got my GED and we did the whole thing, Chen had been transferred to another facility. And um, I never had a chance to like share that with him. After Chen had left, there was no continuation for me because the motivation that inspired me to that point was gone. If Chen probably been there and said, hey, you should, I probably would have based upon that influence he had on me at that time. But the fact that he wasn't there, I had to go back into an environment in which education was not the highlight. Education was not the goal. Education was not the premier avenue or, or, or road that would lead to success for a young black male in prison at age 20 and at age 24 and at 26 because uh, when I say that it was a lifestyle for me, I was incarcerated six times on, on different numerous occasions you know, uh, involving drugs and um, uh, robbery and all that that came with that lifestyle. I remember initially at one point where I began to realize the truth of that when I actually got out, I think I was 26 at one point, and I had my GED. I had, you know, you kind of, you know, you have these ideas of thinking that education is the key to tomorrow's future. Malcolm X said that. And I remember <laughs> going out attempting to uh, actually find a job and to get in school. And I can remember a lot of times prior to that, 
in my first initiation into what we like to call the streets, the main thing that they would ask you, do you have a high school diploma? Can you read and write, et cetera, et cetera. And now that, you know, when I was in prison and I had somehow earned my GED, I somehow another began to think that, you know, even after Chen had departed, that there was something that, you know, no man wants to be in prison. Let me, let's clear that up. Let's, let's clear that up. So there was almost this hopefulness in me that somehow this GED thing would, would, would pan out, you know, that I had a high school equivalency. And I remember seeking a job, employment upon my release. And I remember going to an interview and I sat with the, uh, the hiring manager and, you know, they called me in, et cetera. And they never asked me about my GED, never asked me about none of that. They asked me how well I scored on it. They asked me, what they asked me, their initial question to me was, have you ever been incarcerated? And I, I got to be honest with you, I didn't really think nothing of it because I just figured, okay, yeah, yeah, I was incarcerated. And he basically looked at me and said, I want to thank you for coming in. We'll give you a call. But the way he said it, I knew he wasn't going to call me. And I didn't put the dots together till I think it was about three other interviews later because every interview I went to, that was the question that was initially asked me. And somehow I knew that my incarceration, and it was no longer about a GED or a high school diploma. It had something to do with this incarceration thing. What? I don't know. At the time, I didn't know. Now I can tell you we understand the value of ban the box, that that was a form of discrimination against young men. It was another means of discrimination against young men of color who came from those backgrounds or those communities, so to speak. And for the ni next 19 years of my life, I live what they call thug life or thugging or whatever they choose to call it. We, you know, we were just surviving. People put labels on us, and I need to say this also, we embrace those labels. If you told me this was all I was going to be and you have already dictated what I'm going to be, and this is where you began to see a more of a aggressive young black male, because now you have relegated me to this space in, in, in this society. There was no more need to try to fight to be a part of a society that we knew that we wouldn't be a part of that had drawn the lines in the sand and say, this is your area of this society and it'll be in poverty and it'll be in prisons and it'll be, and that became a cycle for a lot of men such as myself at that time. And how did you get past that? So given all of the struggles that you had in certain, and the systems that you had to navigate from foster care to criminal justice to having a mentor in many ways that told you that education was the way to propel yourself and then losing that mentor, you remained resilient and you still made it here to being in a master's program, being the NASW student of the year. What were your supports? What were the things that you can attribute to your success? I, I think that when I think of those things now that attributed to my success, I would first have to start with the Dauphin. Situations created a space in which I found myself at, at a real broken point. And I, I was in Florida at the time, and I was given an opportunity to, to take part in a program called the Doe Fund. And the reason that is critical for me, because 
I enrolled, I entered the Broke Dough Fund uh, in 2009, a little bit right after my release. And um, this program talked about having an opportunity to rebuild your life. And I always tell people when I initially went to the Dough Fund, I just went because the world had crumbled around me. It was a place that I, I, I assumed at that time to just start, you know, at least do something. But one of the amazing things that I met a man named Nazarene Griffith. And he became the second chin in my life because on the flip side, here was Nazarene Griffith who had lived that life and through his own challenges had navigated and found himself. And he spoke about his daughter. He spoke about his dreams and how he wanted to own a car, and he did. And he's talked about his transition through the Doe Fund. And so through him, it kind of gave me a semblance of hope and value to my life at that time. And what really, I think, did it was that the support that I gained from the Doe Fund, the staff, the people there that said that we could be more than our past. And that was probably the most defining moment through that program was all these different small classes. And I would take them and I would find myself completing these classes. And each time I completed a class, they had this award ceremony. And then it was like what I had done meant something it it gave value to me it, it gave value to my being it gave value to who I was as a person and I remember my confidence beginning to to kind of like you know raise up in a different way that I, I really wasn't familiar with that I was doing something a, a different way through um educational programs that began to validate something else in me so when I graduated it was one of the most defining moments of my life because initially when I went into the Dauphin, I really didn't think I was going to be a graduate. I figured that, you know, I'll get a, you know, I'll get some money in my pocket and something to happen and something, something, you know, something going to go wrong. Life always went wrong for people like us. And I graduated. And that became the beginning and through Nazarene Griffith, and being there at the Doe Fund, I thought to myself, I had this bright idea that maybe if I got a AA degree, I can help people the way NAS helped me. And with that, I enrolled in, I seeked out an organization that's called College Initiative, which helped formerly incarcerated men to enroll back in college or to enroll in college. So, you know, I was 39 at the time. I figured what I got to lose, you know, I just go ahead and, you know, do this, you know, and I'll get it at least at my age, I'll get a AA degree and I have some type of career and was accepted into Bronx Community College. And um, when I initially started school, I was apprehensive about a lot of things. My age, I wasn't as technologically savvy as a lot of my counterparts. Listen, man, I came from the streets. I was coming from a criminal background. Most of these kids were coming from their last high school. Like, <laughs> So I, I, I saw a lot of things, but I, I remember talking with Naz, and he told me to keep doing what I was doing just like what I did at the Doe Fund, and that's putting one foot in front of the next. That's all I can remember, and you know, a lot of things weren't clear. I just knew the, what that meant for me is that I get up, I go to work, I go to school. And that's what I did. And I did that for three years at Bronx Community College. And I graduated from Bronx Community College in uh, 2014. Prior to that, I 
I was named to the Coca-Cola All-Academic Team, the New York State All-Academic Team. I graduated Phi Theta Kappa. I was named a Global Fellow where I studied in Salzburg, Austria. I began to work with the uh, Black Male Initiative that began to help, you know, mentoring young uh, young black men who were coming from different high schools as being an example of what we can become in in this society and how we define ourselves or about how we define ourselves and not allow a society to dictate to us who we are. Again, another individual who played an influential part in that process for me was Mr. Marshall. And he was over the Black Male Initiative, and he talked about how we are not defined by society, that we do, we do not let no one define who you are, how you dress, how you carry yourself. If you're going to be a man, then you be a man by making your own choices and decisions. He was on us in our classes, and he was to pull us to the side and talk to us and ask us, what, you are, what are you doing? Are you here just to play school? Are you here to make a difference? And it was those conversations no one really had with, with me. And, and you got to realize I was an older guy myself, but I almost felt like I was a teenager being taught the things that I had missed from someone I can identify with who could identify with me and where I was going. And he would talk about, I know what you've been through. And he disclosed some things about him. And But he always talked about he would not let that dictate his outcome because the last thing he was going to become is another statistic. And it was through those interactions that I did, I got involved with the Black Male Initiative and uh, went on to do what I did at my academic uh, accolades and everything I achieved at Bronx Community College. And then that's when I was offered the scholarship here to uh, New York University through the Community College Transfer Opportunity Program, which, again, it was another one of those defining moments for me because during this whole transition of my life, there were some other things going on with people I knew. I started doing a lot of speaking engagements. I began to get more involved with what was going on within the Doe Fund outside of my capacity as a dispatcher. I was given a promotion. I became the computer lab manager where I began to uh, teach other men who were coming home from incarceration and homelessness how to, you know, the value of education and computer skills. My life gained value through my misery. And I essentially, I like to think that I became chin and ass all in one <laughs> because a lot of the men that come from incarceration come from those same backgrounds. They come from those same communities. They come from that same brokenness. And for them to be able to see that their lives can transition to being more than just another number. I think that like for me, NAS showed me that I could be more. I think that for a lot of the men that come home that I assist, they find out, I guess, through me that in spite of our backgrounds or where we come from, that we become more, we can become more than just that. We become fathers for real. We become friends for real. We become advocates for real. We become productive members of a society in which we live. And um, these are some of the things that I was able to uh, pick up on and also give back to those men. And I was named the uh, 2016 President Service Award recipient, the, uh, also the 
2016 Excellence Award recipient, which I think I just recently said to you. This year I was named the Excellence Award recipient again, along with the NSAW Student of the Year. I think that what I've learned is that where I began is that resilience. I think that people already have resilience. I think that it's labeled in a way where they don't really understand that if you have survived prison, if you have survived waking up day in and day out, just maintaining it to get through that, you're practicing resilience right then. When you're dealing with the hardships day in and day out, that's resilience. When you're taking in whatever comes your way and still putting one foot in front of the next, dealing with whatever comes, that's resilience. I think resilience is just another word they put on to what we call, you know, our survival skills to make it through those hardships. Because at that point in time, you have to deal with the current situation. With that, Terrence, I want to thank you so much for not only sharing your story, but also just offering words of wisdom for how we can not only see that we are resilient, but tap into it. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me again. Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative is more than a podcast series. It is a call to action. With each episode, we've had the opportunity to engage with dynamic speakers who have shared their knowledge and personal experiences as it relates to living as, working with, and advocating for Black Boys and Men within our nation. They have posed important questions, including, how can we discuss closing prisons and not discuss reentry? What can we do to reform policies to better support Black fathers? And don't black boys have the right to feel welcomed, loved, and appreciated within their schools? The series also offers recommendations, ways that folks can improve practice within their various settings, analyze the impact of historical and present trauma within their communities, and dispel the myths that we are often complicit in perpetuating. Although the series is defined by these issues that most impact black boys and men, these discussions are ongoing. We urge you to get involved within your families, neighborhoods, and town hall spaces. We encourage you to speak out against racism and oppression in all forms. And most of all, we implore you to remain engaged. We sincerely thank our sponsors and our producer, Brianna Gonzalez, for their work to create this important series, and Terrence Coffey and all of our guests for sharing their amazing stories. And most importantly, we thank you for listening. To learn more about our work, visit mcsilver.nyu.edu and ctacny.org. And let's continue to change the narrative together.